Good evening, and thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for all your kind expressions of encouragement to us being here this weekend for you. Again, I want to thank the Palmers for their hospitality and the comfort of their homes and welcoming us there. We'd never laid eyes on each other until yesterday afternoon. Although through the wonders of modern technology, we've been talking for a week, I guess, Carolyn. So we are, uh, I'm glad Adam talked me into coming. Yeah, he's back there with the, right now with a thumbs up. I'm not through yet. Okay. Yeah, he's back there. Well, yeah, here we go, like this. I was hesitant to come. We have visited a couple of other places. And as I told him, uh, one that fit us pretty well but he said give us a chance and we said okay and since i was the one that reached out to you first i felt that was only fair and so we are glad we came and we are glad we got to meet so many of you and uh, are confident in god's working that however this works out it will be for the benefit of the kingdom and whether we see you again in a few weeks months, years, or in the afterlife, we'll know each other, and we will be thankful for the opportunity to have gotten to know you. If you were to take a survey of people in Pulaski County, and I'm not discounting those of you who live in Wayne County, if you were to survey people in Pulaski County and ask them this question, who is a Christian? kind of answers you think you'd get. I suspect to be all over the map. You just stopped someone on the street and said, who do you think a Christian is? What do you think are the marks or characteristics of a person who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? A lot of people would just say, well, this is just a decent person, a good person. Somebody who would help somebody if they had a need of some kind. Somebody who treats somebody else kindly. Other people would say, well, that's, you know, that's a religious person. That's a person who believes in things that you can't see, believes in an eternity, uh, and, and they go to church probably on a regular basis with other people who believe similar things. So there's a little bit more to their life, at least they think there is, than there is just to what we see and experience. Somebody else might say, well, that's somebody that, that reads the Bible. And because we look at that book, even people who are not religious, look at that book with amazement. We, we look at this book that, uh, and if you've studied the means by which we got the Bible today, it's extraordinary how we came up with the contents of Scripture. And yet for that book to be, over the last 2,000 plus years, the most produced and best-selling book, ever written is amazing. The dictionary gives some surprising definitions for a Christian. It is one who professes a belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's not exactly earth-shattering. A decent or presentable person. One who exemplifies in his life teachings of Jesus. One who belongs to any religious organization that teaches Jesus. Most people 
would reject most or all of these ideas as either being too inclusive or not inclusive enough. What about you? A person who's on the role of a conservative, non-institutional, non-instrumental church of Christ? It's obvious we can't count on a dictionary definition for this. It's not a dictionary term. We need to go to the Bible and see who God considers to be a Christian. And what does the Bible have to say about the marks of a Christian? What does it have to say to this question of who is a Christian? The first thing we'd notice is that when we turn to the New Testament, the word Christian is used in three passages, and that's all. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Peter writes, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now this particular passage doesn't tell us much of anything about who a Christian is. It just says if you suffer because of that designation, you shouldn't be ashamed. You should glorify God. But it doesn't really tell us who that is. In Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 27, the Apostle Paul is speaking to, in his own defense to Agrippa, and the scriptures say that he says to Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This particular passage tells us that Paul was a Christian, but it doesn't tell us anything about how Paul became a Christian or how someone else might become a Christian or who a Christian is. It just identifies that Paul was a Christian. But the last passage we find this in, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, is one that begins to give us a clue from Scripture about who God considers to be a Christian. There Luke records very simply, in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. This passage tells us that disciples were called Christians. And so it implies that disciples equal Christians. Those who the Bible refers to as disciples are those who are Christians. And so the Bible has a lot to say about who disciples are. And we can take this equivalency and we can begin to look in Scripture to find out what characteristics or marks disciples had, we can then begin to apply them to who Christians are. And so we turn our attention to the idea or question of who is a disciple or what is a disciple. The idea of discipleship is one that is borrowed from the field of education. Today it doesn't mean a whole lot like it did in the first century. Back then, it meant something completely different than it does today. Today, 
when we, when we talk about education and we talk about educating our children or even beyond that when we talk about adults educating themselves, we talk about the idea of choosing a particular discipline and then going and finding experts in that discipline or expert schools in that discipline or perhaps it's some vocation or some technical field and we go to someone who has a great knowledge of that and that person instructs us in that. There is teacher specialization. There are large classes. Rarely, uh, rarely are teachers and students together more often than an hour or two or three a week. And yet education or information is transferred from the one who has an expertise to the one who desires to have that expertise. But in the first century it was quite different. In the first century, a teacher knew about everything there was to be known. The body of knowledge of things that were known in the first century was tiny compared to today. There is so much more knowledge we have of so many more disciplines today. It is impossible to imagine someone today as a teacher having a knowledge of every subject. It's just impossible. You spend your whole life studying, and you still wouldn't have a knowledge of every subject. And so there's specialization. But in the first century, it wasn't that hard for one man over a lifetime to have studied all the things that could be studied and to pretty much know everything that could be known. And he would be the teacher. And the instruction was generally one-on-one. -on -one. A disciple was one who selected a teacher and went and lived with the teacher full time. Took his meals there, slept in his house or wherever, whatever accommodation the teacher had, spent his days with the teacher, and it was one-on-one -on -one instruction. We think of it today in, in terms of uh, apprenticeships. That was kind of what, what the first century disciple and teacher were like. They spent a lot of time together. To the point that the disciple over time, came to know everything that the teacher knew. And we have examples of that in Scripture. We understand that the, that the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, sat at the feet of a great teacher, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel taught him the things that he knew about all the things that one could know at that time. And Saul spent a lot of time with that man. So much so that we might say after he had spent this time with him and been educated by him that he was a disciple of Gamaliel or a Gamalian. He followed after the teachings of that. Now there were differences in teachers and different philosophies that might be uh, taught, but in terms of certain subjects, there was only a limited amount of knowledge. And every teacher might have a limited amount of knowledge about mathematics or other factual subjects that could be taught to others. But when it came to philosophies, when it came to uh, uh, views of life and how one was going to live their life, there was this wide disparity. And so Saul went and sat at the feet of a Jewish teacher because that's what his parents wanted him to learn. And he spent all of his time with him. This is illustrated, of course, by Jesus and the 12 men who spent an extraordinary three years of their lives with the Savior. 
they were disciples. And he calls them that many times. And they spent almost all of their time with him. They traveled with him. They took meals with him. They went wherever he went. There are occasions when the disciples might be found in other places. But generally the gospel record that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, implies to us that these men spent the overwhelming majority of their time over this three-year period with Jesus wherever he was. And they watched what he did, and they listened to what he taught. And though the scriptures don't reveal a lot to us about this, they probably had a lot of private conversations with Jesus about subjects of great importance. It's not hard to imagine in the evenings, Jesus sitting with his disciples, and one of them perking up and saying, Lord, <clears throat> I heard you say this today, and I'm not sure what you meant. Could you explain that to me? Or I saw you do this to this man. Or Lord, we went out today in the marketplace and we met a man who said this. What do you think of that? These men became disciples of the Lord and they became friends of the Lord. And in the first century, that's what disciples and teachers became. They became friends. They became comrades. They began to think alike. They began to see things alike. And the influence of the teacher on the disciple was to mold that disciple into someone who acted and taught and thought like the teacher. We have an example of that mentioned or the idea mentioned in Romans chapter 8. When Paul talks about how God has saved us and justified us and made us right so that we would conform to the image of his son so that as disciples of Jesus Christ we would come to look like Jesus and I don't mean physically look like him I mean in the way that we behave in the way that we act people would see in us the Savior that's what a disciple was now I want you to notice how discipleship came about there was at first these 11 men, 12 minus Judas. And in Matthew chapter 28, a passage that uh, was alluded to before we sang the last song, Jesus said this to his disciples. In verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage reveals to us two things about disciples. The first thing about disciples we note is that they were those who were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the second thing Jesus said there was that these are those who keep on learning and obeying Jesus' commands. And so, if we go back to our original uh, assessment of who Christians are, and we note that they are disciples, then Christians are those who have been baptized into Christ and continue to follow the teachings and commands of Jesus Christ. 
in an education environment, like we talked about with regard to disciples, we might think of this as the recruiting or enrolling of students and then the further education of those students. As an example, in Acts chapter 2, Luke describes what happened at Pentecost this way. Those who received his word, verse 41, were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so what Luke is describing here is what happened on Pentecost when Peter preached his lesson and his sermon about Jesus being the one who had been crucified and him being the Son of God and this being the promise of God and God's plan being manifest. And in verse 37, they responded by saying, what do we do? They're cut to the heart. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And Luke tells us in verse 41 that on that day they added or enrolled about 3,000 people. And further he says when he, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were further taught by the apostles. These men doing exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28. I want you to go and make disciples of them, baptizing them, and then teaching them. And what happens in Acts 2? They baptize them and they teach them. And so what is happening in Acts chapter 2 is obviously people at Pentecost becoming Christians. Even though Luke never uses that word in Acts chapter 2, that's what he's describing. So we might stop at this point and ask the question. Based on this simple teaching, are you a Christian? Have you been baptized into Christ in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins? And are you following after the teachings and commands of Jesus? If you are, then you would meet these criteria for being a disciple or a Christian. But the Bible says there's more to it than that. Notice how later the disciples behaved. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now here is something different from simply learning the teachings of Jesus and the commands of Jesus. Here is an obedient behavior. I not only learn what Jesus would have me to do, I do what Jesus would have me to do. And that's what a disciple does. A disciple of Jesus not only knows what Jesus teaches, he follows the commandments of Jesus and does what Jesus says he ought to do. In John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So disciples are not only learners of the word who've been baptized, they are keepers of the word of Jesus. Disciples do what Jesus says. Words are something Jesus 
linked directly to himself. In his famous passage in John chapter 6, beginning with verse 54, John records that Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus said, the Spirit gives life, and the words are spirit and life. He is speaking to the obedience of his words. This is not a passage about the Lord's Supper. This is a passage about us taking the words of Jesus and consuming them and letting them be what guides our living. When we eat the Lord's flesh and drink his blood, we are taking his essence in the things that he taught and the way that he lived and making it ours. We are conforming ourselves to his image. That's what Jesus was speaking about. And what it gets at is not just the learning of what Jesus would teach, but the doing of what Jesus would teach. The reason so many of these people, uh, as John records, that there were many who turned back and no longer walked after him was not because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. It was because they did understand what Jesus was saying. I want your life. And I want every moment of it and every purpose of it and every obedient action of it. And it has to be me and my words abiding in you. And when we go off on our own and decide we're going to do something Jesus never said to do, His words are not abiding in us. Notice some other passages that get at this same idea. John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What's going to determine whether we've been obedient, the Word. The Word. Jesus' words are what are going to judge us. Somebody, and, and, and we are living in a culture right now that is all up in arms about judge. Don't judge me. Don't, don't tell me I can't do this or can't do that. You're not my judge. You can't do it. Jesus is. Jesus is. And His words will judge. And brothers and sisters, we have His words. In black and white. And we can see what they say. In John 15 and verse 3, he said, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The idea of cleansing by the word is one that Paul carries over in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks of the church having been cleansed by the washing of water with the word. What do you think that's a reference to? It's not rocket science. The words of Jesus were to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
a washing, a cleansing. How does Jesus create in this a body for Himself from those who respond to His Word? By cleansing them, by washing them, by making them disciples. In John 16 and verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You're going to have peace in me. How? By abiding in my words. It is a simple idea, brothers and sisters, to take the words of Jesus and make them the pattern for how we're going to live our lives. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Make this the pattern that you're going to live by. In John, first, <clears throat> first John chapter 2 and verse 24, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. What you heard. Words. This is a profoundly simple idea that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. What's the power of God to salvation? Words. Words. Why would God use something so simple? Because every living human being can understand words. And God says it in such a way that it becomes an objective standard by which we measure whether we are disciples. It's easy to, to open God's Word and look at it when God says, don't do this, and we look at our lives and go, well, I'm doing this, to say, well, I'm not abiding in the words of Jesus. The words of the Master abide in the disciple. The disciple becomes like the master. It's amazing <clears throat> when you talk about it at the beginning. I talked about if you went out and surveyed people about what are the marks of a Christian or who's a Christian, what the world considers today or who the world today considers to be a Christian. As I mentioned this morning, 40% of people who self-describe as Christians can't tell you where Jesus is talked about in the Bible. Can't tell you. What kind of disciple is that? I'm a disciple. I've, I've sat at the feet of the Savior. I've listened to His words and I've taken them in. And I can't tell you where the Bible talks about it. This is, uh, this is like a person deciding there's been a whole lot of this in, in, our, in our news cycle lately. This is like a person saying, well, you know, I'm in favor of, of some of the things that our culture is advancing these days. I really like the, uh, the idea of us becoming a communist country. By the way, I'm quoting somebody. I don't like that idea. But somebody says, I like that idea. Well, why do you like that idea? Well, I like this Karl Marx guy. And you say, oh, well, do you know what he... Do, do, so you've read Karl Marx. No, I just like the na way his name sounds. But I'm a disciple of his. And this is the way people sometimes describe themselves as being disciples of Jesus. Well, I like the sound of that. And it's going to gain me some kind of advantage. And people are going to look at me differently if I describe myself as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jesus teach? I have no idea. But I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
That's not what a disciple is. And that's not what a Christian is. People today who claim to be Christians but are part of religious institutions that are involved in all kinds of activities that Jesus never said anything about. That teach them nothing about being disciples. But they're all about feeling good about themselves and being entertained in their worship, like we talked about earlier. No accountability for their behavior. And so many religious bodies today, today promote that kind of idea. And it's not surprising why people flock to those. I want to go to a, a, a church that makes me feel good about myself and never holds me accountable for my behavior at all. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was the way to heaven? No, it wouldn't. Our society's corrupt enough. And that would just corrupt it further. As we've noted already, a disciple is one who has been enrolled or added by being baptized, one who further learns from the teachings of the apostles, and one who abides in the words of Jesus, learning all they can about the Savior. So we might stop at this point again and ask, are you a Christian? Have you done those things? Do you continue to do those things? But there's one more defining mark, one more defining trait that I want to mention of disciples or Christians. You notice the suffix on the end of that word. Ian. I-A-N. It means belonging to, devoted to, like. Most of you here are Kentuckians. You may be Americans. The Bible speaks of Grecians and Herodians and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. That suffix assigns to you a connection to some place or person defining some essential trait about you. We apply it to personality traits and talents and jobs. You may know someone who's a musician or a magician or a mortician. And there's countless. And we know what that means. We use those to describe things about people. And in Acts 11, the disciples were called Christians. Devoted to Jesus Christ. Belonging to Jesus Christ. It conveys the meaning that disciples are owned by Jesus. They're like Jesus. They belong to Him. Does that describe you? In Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher when we're fully trained. As a disciple, we will be like our master. Sometimes today when you hear someone speak or teach publicly, you can identify the person that they've studied under. Some of you know Mark McCrary. Mark's a good friend. I've known him. I've known Mark since he was born. 
he's an excellent gospel preacher and a fine man. And I suppose after he went to Louisville and started spending time there and being under the tutelage of some older men and one in particular, it was probably 15 or 20 years that I heard Mark preach. And after he came out of the pulpit, I said to Mark, I can tell who you've been studying under. Because he sounded and taught like his master, so to speak. The one he'd been studying under. Sometimes today we will see a child, uh, a son or daughter, either one, and we'll see them and we'll know who they are and we will say, you are the spitting image of your mother or father. I know who you are just by looking at you. They have the image of their mother and father. We can, we can identify them. And many times, as they get older, we'll see someone's mannerisms and even the way they talk. And we'll know where those came from. I remember one time I had this uh, uh, a very close likeness to my uh, middle brother, my second brother. I've said many times, he was seven years older than me, and he pretty much raised me, because I was the last of five kids, and my parents were exhausted by then. And so I spent a lot of time with Bill, running around. I had buddies that were my age who were brothers of some of his buddies, and we just did everything together. He taught me a lot about life. We have a lot of similarities. We sound alike. We have many of the same mannerisms. We use the same expressions many times. I remember when Teresa and I, I think we were dating. I don't know, we might have been married. I can't remember. She could tell you later. But the phone rang at my parents' house. I think it was my parents' house. And my brother was supposedly visiting, and it was his wife calling. And I picked up the phone, and I said, hello. And the voice on the other end goes, oh, hey. And I said, this is Bo. <laughs> and he goes, oh, hey. <laughs> there have been times when my wife has told me she would see my brother from behind and think it was me. We look similar. We have the same similar build. He has more hair than I do. Okay. But you see in people who spend a lot of time together these kinds of, of things that give you the idea of an image of the person they are disciples of or people who have taught them. That's what God wants us to be like. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, Paul said, Those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We should come eventually in our discipleship to incarnate Jesus Christ. What would you think if somebody came up to you and said, you know, you remind me of Jesus. I think we'd all just be like, sadly I've known some, some brethren 
Who'd be embarrassed by that? I can't imagine. I really can't imagine. If someone told me, your behavior is like I imagine Jesus acting, being embarrassed by that. That's what God wants. He wants us to behave in such a way that it demonstrates to the world that we belong to Him, that we are abiding in His words, that we are following after His teaching and obeying His commands because we have experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness that comes from dying with Him in baptism to have our sins forgiven. That's who's a Christian. That's who, according to the Bible, God looks at as being His children. Those who, as Paul mentioned there, have become the adopted children, brothers to our brother Jesus Christ. And that term is not used as a gender-specific idea. Family members. Siblings with Jesus Christ. But we are still disciples. We haven't graduated yet. We haven't finished this course. We're still in school. We're still learning things that the Savior wants us to learn. We need to be moving toward that idea that we express to our children so much of matriculation. You know, there is a uh, a term we use for the graduation from schools and it is commencement. And commencement does not mean end, it means beginning. We are commencing to do something. And as disciples, when we are trying to emulate the, the Savior, we are commencing to be the children of God and behave in a way that bring honor and glory to Him. And that's the direction we all need to be moving in. And if you aren't living up to the name of the disciples who are called Christians in Somerset, Kentucky, then maybe you need to go back and review what your discipleship is about and whether you really are a Christian. Do you want to be a disciple today? You got that opportunity. At every service, it is the custom uh, of congregations like this to offer the opportunity for anyone who'd like to die with Jesus Christ, put on Christ through baptism, have your sins forgiven, begin that discipleship and that walk in life toward abiding in Him and belonging to Him and conforming to the image of Jesus. And you have a chance to do it. We're going to stand up and sing a song in a minute. If that's a little intimidating to you, Wait till the close of the service. And then just let one of these good men know, I want to die with Christ. And we can do it that way too. There should be nothing terrifying about becoming a disciple. It should be easy. It should be simple. It should be something that's simply desired. Let's stand and sing to him.